Part One of Enchantress of Venus by Lee Douglas Brackett. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Phil Chenevere. This story was published first in Planet Stories, Fall of 1949. Part One. The ship moved slowly across the Red Sea, through the shrouding veils of mist, her sail barely filled by the languid thrust of the wind. Her hull, of a thin light metal, floated without sound, the surface of the strange ocean parting before her prow in silent rippling streamers of flame. Night deepened toward the ship, a river of indigo flowing out of the west. The man, known as Stark, stood alone by the after-rail and watched its coming. He was full of impatience and a gathering sense of danger, so that it seemed to him that even the hot wind smelled of it. The steersman lay drowsily over his sweep. He was a big man with skin and hair the color of milk. He did not speak, but Stark felt that now and again the man's eyes turned toward him pale and calculating under half-closed lids, with a secret avarice. The captain and the two other members of the little coasting vessel's crew were forward at their evening meal. Once or twice Stark heard a burst of laughter, half-whispered and furtive. It was as though all four shared in some private joke from which he was rigidly excluded. The heat was oppressive. Sweat gathered on Stark's dark face. His shirt stuck to his back. The air was heavy with moisture, tainted with the muddy fecundity of the land that brooded westward behind the eternal fog. There was something ominous about the sea itself. Even on its own world the Red Sea is hardly more than legend. It lies behind the mountains of white cloud the great barrier-wall that hides away half a planet. Few men have gone beyond that barrier, into the vast mystery of inner Venus. Fewer still have come back. Stark was one of that handful. Three times before he had crossed the mountains, and once he had stayed for nearly a year. But he had never grown quite used to the Red Sea. It was not water. It was gaseous dense enough to float the buoyant hulls of the metal ships, and it burned perpetually with its deep inner fires. The mists that clouded it were stained with the bloody glow. Beneath the surface Stark could see the drifts of flame where the lazy currents ran, and the little coiling bursts of sparks that came upward and spread and melted into other bursts, so that the face of the sea was like a cosmos of crimson stars. It was very beautiful, glowing against the blue, luminous darkness of the night. Beautiful and strange. There was a padding of bare feet, and the captain, Malthor, came up to Stark, his outlines dim and ghostly in the gloom. We will reach Sharoon, he said, before the second glass is run. Stark nodded. Good. The voyage had seemed endless, 
and the close confinement of the narrow deck had got badly on his nerves. "'You will like Sharoon,' said the captain jovially. "'Our wine, our food, our women, all superb. We don't have many visitors. We keep to ourselves, as you will see. But those who do come—' He laughed and clapped Stark on the shoulder. "'Ah, yes, you will be happy in Sharoon.' It seemed to Stark that he caught an echo of laughter from the unseen crew, as though they listened and found a hidden jest in Malthor's words. Stark said, "'That's fine.' "'Perhaps,' said Malthor, "'you would like to lodge with me. I could make you a good price.' He had made a good price for Stark's passage from up the coast, an exorbitantly good one. Stark said, "'No.' "'You don't have to be afraid,' said the Venusian, in a confidential tone. "'The strangers who come to Sharoon all have the same reason. It's a good place to hide. We're out of everybody's reach.' He paused, but Stark did not rise to his bait. Presently he chuckled and went on. <laughs> "'In fact, it's such a safe place that most of the strangers decide to stay on. Now in my house I could give you—' Stark said again flatly. "'No,' the captain shrugged. "'Very well. Think it over, anyway.' He peered ahead into the red, coiling mists. "'Ah, see there?' he pointed. And Stark made out the shadowy loom of cliffs. We are coming into the strait now." Malthor turned and took the steering sweep himself, the helmsman going forward to join the others. The ship began to pick up speed. Stark saw that she had come into the grip of a current that swept toward the cliffs, a river of fire racing ever more swiftly in the depths of the sea. The dark wall seemed to plunge toward them. At first Stark could see no passage. Then, suddenly, a narrow crimson streak appeared, widened, and became a gut of boiling flame rushing silently around broken rocks. Red fog rose like smoke. The ship quivered, sprang ahead, and tore like a mad thing into the heart of the inferno. In spite of himself, Stark's hands tightened on the rail. Tattered veils of mist swirled past them. The sea, the air, the ship itself seemed drenched in blood. There was no sound in all that wild sweep of current through the strait. Only the sullen fires burst and flowed. The reflected glare showed Stark that the straits of Sharoon were defended. Squat fortresses brooded on the cliffs. There were ballistas and great windlasses for the drawing of nets across the narrow throat. The men of Sharoon could enforce their law that barred all foreign shipping from their gulf. They had reasoned for such a law and such a defense. The legitimate trade of Sharoon, such as it was, was in wine and the delicate laces woven from spider silk. Actually, however, the city lived and throve on piracy, the arts of wrecking, and a contraband trade in the distilled juice of the Vela poppy. Looking at the rocks and the fortresses, Stork could understand how it was that Sharoon had been able, for more centuries than anyone could tell, to victimize the shipping of the Red Sea 
and offer a refuge to the outlaw, the wolf's head, the breaker of taboo. With startling abruptness they were through the gut and drifting on the still surface of this all but landlocked arm of the Red Sea. Because of the shrouding fog Stark could see nothing of the land. But the smell of it was stronger. Warm, damp soil and the heavy, faintly rotten perfume of vegetation half jungle, half swamp. Once, through a rift in the wreathing vapor, he thought he glimpsed the shadowy bulk of an island, but it was gone at once. After the terrifying rush of the strait, it seemed to Stark that the ship barely moved. His impatience and the subtle sense of danger deepened. He began to pace the deck with the nervous velvet motion of a prowling cat. The moist, steamy air seemed all but unbreathable after the clean dryness of Mars from which he had come so recently. It was oppressively still. Suddenly he stopped, his head thrown back, listening. The sound was borne faintly on the slow wind. It came from everywhere and nowhere, a vague, dim thing without source or direction. It almost seemed that the night itself had spoken, the hot blue night of Venus, crying out of the mists with a tongue of infinite woe. It faded and died away, only half heard, leaving behind it a sense of aching sadness, as though all the misery and longing of a world had found voice in that desolate wail. Stork shivered. For a time there was silence, and then he heard the sound again, now on a deeper note. Still faint and far away, it was sustained longer by the vagaries of the heavy air, and it became a chant rising and falling. There were no words. It was not the sort of thing that would have need of words. Then it was gone again. Stark turned to Malthor. What was that? The man looked at him curiously. He seemed not to have heard. That wailing sound, said Stark impatiently. Oh, that. The Venusian shrugged. A trick of the wind. It sighs in the hollow rocks around the strait. He yawned, giving place again to the steersman, and came to stand beside Stark. The earthman ignored him. For some reason that sound half heard through the mists had brought his uneasiness to a sharp pitch. Civilization had brushed over Stark with a light hand. Raised from infancy by half-human aboriginals, his perceptions were still those of a savage. His ear was good. Malthor lied. That cry of pain was not made by any wind. "'I have known several earthmen,' said Malthor, changing the subject, but not too swiftly. "'None of them were like you.' Intuition warned Stark to play along. "'I don't come from Earth,' he said. "'I come from Mercury.' Malthor puzzled over that. Venus is a cloudy world where no man has ever seen the sun, let alone a star. The captain had heard vaguely of these things. Earth and Mars he knew of, but Mercury was an unknown word. Stark explained. The planet nearest the sun. It's very hot there. 
The sun blazes like a huge fire, and there are no clouds to shield it. Ah, that is why your skin is so dark. He held his own pale forearm close to Stark's and shook his head. I have never seen such skin, he said admiringly, nor such great muscles. Looking up, he went on in a tone of complete friendliness. I wish you would stay with me. You'll find no better lodgings in Sharoon. And I warn you, there are people in town who will take advantage of strangers, rob them, even slay them. Now I am known by all as a man of honor. You could sleep soundly under my roof. He paused, then added with a smile, Also I have a daughter, an excellent cook, and very beautiful. The woeful chanting came again, dim and distant on the wind, an echo of warning against some unimagined fate. Stark said for the third time, No. He needed no intuition to tell him to walk wide of the captain. The man was a rogue and not a very subtle one. A flint-hard angry look came briefly into Malthor's eyes. You're a stubborn man. You'll find that Sharoon is no place for stubbornness." He turned and went away. Stark remained where he was. The ship drifted on through a slow eternity of time, and all down that long still gulf of the Red Sea, through the heat and the wreathing fog, the ghostly chanting haunted him like the keening of lost souls in some forgotten hell. Presently the course of the ship was altered. Malthor came again to the after-deck, giving a few quiet commands. Stark saw land ahead, a darker blur on the night, and then the shrouded outlines of a city. Torches blazed on the quays and in the streets, and the low buildings caught a ruddy glow from the burning sea itself. A squat and ugly town, Sharoon, crouching witch-like on the rocky shore, her ragged skirts dipped in blood. The ship drifted in toward the Keys. Stark heard a whisper of movement behind him, the hushed and purposeful padding of naked feet. He turned with the astonishing swiftness of an animal that feels itself threatened, his hand dropping to his gun. A belaying pin thrown by the steersman struck the side of his head with stunning force. Reeling, half-blinded, he saw the distorted shapes of men closing in upon him. Malthor's voice sounded low and hard. A second belaying pin whizzed through the air and cracked against Stark's shoulder. Hands were laid upon him. Bodies, heavy and strong, bore his down. Malthor laughed. Stark's teeth glinted bare and white. Someone's cheek brushed past, and he sank them into the flesh. He began to growl, a sound that should never have come from a human throat. It seemed to the startled Venusians that the man they had attacked had by some wizardry become a beast at the first touch of violence. The man with the torn cheek screamed. There was a voiceless scuffling on the deck, a terrible intensity of motion, and then the great dark body rose and shook itself free of the tangle and was gone, over the rail leaving Malthor with nothing but the silken rags of a shirt in his hands. 
the surface of the Red Sea closed without a ripple over Stark. There was a burst of crimson sparks, a momentary trail of flame going down like a drowned comet, and then nothing. Stark dropped slowly downward through a strange world. There was no difficulty about breathing, as in a sea of water. The gases of the Red Sea support life quite well, and the creatures that dwell in it have almost normal lungs. Stark did not pay much attention at first, except to keep his balance automatically. He was still dazed from the blow, and he was raging with anger and pain. The primitive in him, whose name was not Stark but Nchaka, and who had fought and starved and hunted in the blazing valleys of Mercury's twilight belt, learning lessons he never forgot, wished to return and slay Malthor and his men. He regretted that he had not torn out their throats, for now his trail would never be safe from them. But the man Stark, who had learned some more bitter lessons in the name of civilization, knew the unwisdom of that. He snarled over his aching head and cursed the Venusians in the harsh, crude dialect that was his mother tongue. But he did not turn back. There would be time enough for Malthor. It struck him that the gulf was very deep. Fighting down his rage he began to swim in the direction of the shore. There was no sign of pursuit, and he judged that Malthor had decided to let him go. He puzzled over the reason for the attack. It could hardly be robbery, since he carried nothing but the clothes he stood in and very little money. No, there was some deeper reason, a reason connected with Malthor's insistence that he lodge with him. Stark smiled. It was not a pleasant smile. He was thinking of Sharoon and the things men said about it around the shores of the Red Sea. Then his face hardened. The dim, coiling fires through which he swam brought him memories of other times he had gone adventuring in the depths of the Red Sea. He had not been alone then. Helvi had gone with him, the tall son of a barbarian kinglet up coast by Yarel. They had hunted strange beasts through the crystal forests of the sea-bottom, and bathed in the welling flames that pulse from the very heart of Venus to feed the ocean. They had been brothers. Now Helvi was gone into Sharoon. He had never returned. Stark swam on, and presently he saw below him in the red gloom something that made him drop lower, frowning with surprise. There were trees beneath him, great forest giants towering up into an eerie sky, their branches swaying gently to the slow wash of the currents. Stark was puzzled. The forests where he and Helvi had hunted were truly crystalline, without even the memory of life. The trees were no more trees in actuality than the branching corals of Terra's southern oceans. These were real, or had been. He thought at first that they still lived, for their leaves were green, and here and there creepers had stored them with great nodding blossoms of gold and purple and waxy white. But when he floated down close enough to touch them he realized that they were dead, trees, creepers, blossoms, and all. They had not mummified nor turned to stone. They were pliable, and their colors were very bright 
Simply, they had ceased to live, and the gases of the sea had preserved them by some chemical magic so perfectly that barely a leaf had fallen. Stark did not venture into the shadowy denseness below the topmost branches. A strange fear came over him at the sight of that vast forest dreaming in the depths of the gulf, drowned and forgotten, as though wondering why the birds had gone, taking with them the warm rains and the light of day. He thrust his way upward, himself like a huge dark bird above the branches. An overwhelming impulse to get away from that flat, unearthly place drove him on, his half-wild sense shuddering with an impression of evil so great that it took all of his acquired common sense to assure him that he was not pursued by demons. He broke the surface at last, to find that he had lost his direction in the red deep and made a long circle around so that he was far below Sharoon. He made his way back, not hurrying now, and presently clambered out over the black rocks. He stood at the end of a muddy lane that wandered in toward the town. He followed it, moving neither fast nor slow, but with a wary alertness. Huts of wattle and daub took shape out of the fog, increasing in numbers, became a street of dwellings. Here and there rushlights glimmered through the slitted windows. A man and a woman clung together in a low doorway. They saw him and sprang apart, and the woman gave a little cry. Stark went on. He did not look back, but he knew that they were following him quietly at a little distance. The lane twisted snake-like upon itself, crawling now through a crowded jumble of houses. There were more lights and more people tall, white-skinned folk of the swamp edges, with pale eyes and long hair the color of new flax, and the faces of wolves. Stark passed among them, alien and strange with his black hair and sun-darkened skin. They did not speak, nor did they try to stop him. Only they looked at him out of the red fog with a curious blend of amusement and fear, and some of them followed him, keeping well behind. A gang of small naked children came from somewhere among the houses and ran shouting beside him, out of reach, until one boy threw a stone and screamed something unintelligible except for one word, El Hari. Then they all stopped, horrified, and fled. Stark went on, through the quarter of the lace-makers, heading by instinct toward the wharves. The glow of the Red Sea pervaded all the air so that it seemed as though the mist was full of tiny drops of blood. There was a smell about the place he did not like, a damp miasma of mud and crowding bodies and wine and the breath of the vela poppy. Sharoon was an unclean town, and it stank of evil. There was something else about it a subtle thing that touched Stark's nerves with a chill finger. Fear. He could see the shadow of it in the eyes of the people, hear its undertone in their voices. The wolves of Sharoon did not feel safe in their own kennel. Unconsciously, as this feeling grew upon him, Stark's step grew more and more wary, his eyes more cold and hard. He came out into a broad square by the harbor front. He could see the ghostly ships moored along the quays. 
the pile casks of wine, the tangle of mists and cordage, dim against the background of the burning gulf. There were many torches here. Large low buildings stood around the square. There was laughter and the sound of voices from the dark verandas, and somewhere a woman sang to the melancholy lilting of a reed pipe. A suffused glow of light in the distance ahead caught Stark's eyes. That way the streets sloped to a higher ground, and, straining his vision against the fog, he made out very dimly the tall bulk of a castle crouched on the low cliffs, looking with bright eyes upon the night and the streets of Sharoon. Stark hesitated briefly. Then he started across the square toward the largest of the taverns. There were a number of people in the open space, mostly sailors and their women. They were loose and foolish with wine, but even so they stopped where they were and stared at the dark stranger, and then drew back from him, still staring. Those who had followed Stark came into the square after him and then paused, spreading out in an aimless sort of way to join with other groups, whispering among themselves. The woman stopped singing in the middle of a phrase. End of Part One